Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> ah, hello there. So wonderful to see you again at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I always... I'm delighted to see you when you walk through that door. But I see you're not alone. If you noticed as you came in the door, a raven flew in behind you and it, uh, it is delivering. It seems to be there's a, a note attached to the leg of this raven. Let me pull this out and unfurl it. Uh -huh. It seems there is news of the realm. A new king has been crowned. But will this be a strong king, or will this be the weak and foolish kind? That is the question and the subject of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the mutoscope and take a look at the new HBO series, House of the Dragon. So House of the Dragon is the much-anticipated sequel series to Game of Thrones, which took the world by storm uh, in its first season. And then by the time we got to the end of Game of Thrones, it was uh, very divisive, to say the least. But uh, needless to say, uh, I think everybody who was a fan of Game of Thrones, whether you liked the ending of the series or you didn't like the ending of the series, I think everybody was looking forward to going back to Westeros and the uh, the world of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, which is where this, this world all started. So I was happy to see that they were doing a sequel series. I was a little surprised. There are other things I, I thought would be more interesting to delve into when it comes to the world of Game of Thrones. The Long Night, I think, would have been cool to go into. Uh, Robert's Rebellion, I think, would have been a cool tie-in to, to Game of Thrones directly as a, as a sequel or, or prequel, if you will, but they decided to go a different route. Well, I, I take that back. HBO really commissioned multiple pilots for multiple spinoff series, but they decided on this uh, House of the Dragon series based off the George R. R. Martin book, uh, Fire and Blood, about the uh, Targaryen history. And most specifically, this is about the Targaryen Civil War, or the Dance of the Dragons, if you will. Which I thought was kind of cool in itself, because, you know, that was the big thing about Game of Thrones. Where are all the dragons? And with this, you are going to get all the dragons. So I thought, you know, it, it was something uh, where if if done right, this could be actually quite cool. So I was really excited about it. Again, just excited to get back into the world uh, of Westeros and the world of uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, imagination. It would be nice to get back into that in a book with uh, Wins a Winner. Uh, George, what are you doing? But at any rate, uh, just to get back into this world was fun. And it was something where I, I'd never read Fire and Blood 
but I, I know about the story, you know, in dealing with uh, watching Game of Thrones. I just kind of poured myself into the world and the history and the mythos of this of this land, this fantasy land. And so there's a lot of the story of Fire and Blood and the Targaryen Civil War that I'm familiar with, but I never read the book. And for those who have read the book, you'll know, and for those who don't, or haven't read the book, you you don't know, or or maybe you've heard. I mean, it's it's been out there enough now that the Fire and Blood book it's a history, a like kind of like a word of mouth, an oral history, so to speak, of the Targaryens, where you have different maesters all giving their accounts of the events that happen, and you take the Targaryen Civil War for that matter, you get different maesters telling different sides of the stories and you know they're unreliable sources because you have some maesters that are biased one way other maesters that are biased another uh you have stories being told almost telephone like where it's you know they heard this that and the other thing so it it really i think is an interesting idea to one tell a story this way because really there is no definitive story because like i said you're getting accounts from people who are interjecting their own biases into the story. So that makes doing an adaptation of it a little easier on the showrunners because they're unreliable sources in this book, Fire and Blood. So you can just, any changes you make, say, you can chalk it up to, well, that wasn't exactly how it went in the book because how it went in the book is not exactly how it happened. So I like that idea because like so much of Game of Thrones came down to uh, what was in the book and what wasn't in the book or what wasn't in the book and what we think George R. R. Martin was going to put in the other books that he hasn't done yet. But I thought that was it was a clever way to go because you kind of uh, you're hedging your bet and you're insulating yourself from fan criticism by doing this story that is done in such an unreliable way. But ultimately, we're going to run down some of the main characters and their place in the story. And then we're going to kind of go over some of my highlights of each episode. I'm not going to run down each episode individually because there are a lot of episodes that were just, to be quite honest, they were damn boring. But each episode, I think, at least had one highlight for me that I enjoyed. And and then when we get to some of the later episodes, I think business kind of picked up, so to speak. So we'll kind of talk to that uh, in a little bit. But one of the things I, I really enjoyed was the cast. You had uh, Patty Considine playing King Viserys Targaryen. Uh, he is uh, so fantastic in this because he's, he's warm and kind and he's a good guy. He's, uh, you know not thought of as a good king because instead of making the wrong decision because the decision is tough he just didn't make any decisions and that kind of led to a lot of uh, a lot of his problems a lot of problems within the realm but he played this part quite well and he was so likable and he felt so much for king viserys uh, the first because he just, you know, he's he's very affable. He's a very affable guy. And you just can't not like a guy like that. You know, he's dealing with all the politics. I don't think he ever really wanted to be king. He didn't really expect to be king. Uh, Rhaenys, the, 
the queen that never was. She probably should have been queen, but, you know, the patriarchy. Uh, she uh, was passed over for him, and he's just kind of the reluctant king. And one of his uh, interesting points is he was the last king to ride uh, Balerion, the Black Dread, the Aegon the Conqueror's legendary dragon who just died of old age, hundreds of years old. So uh, that that's a kind of cool point uh, that they... They talk about and bring up from time to time, but he's very obsessed with Aegon's dream, the dream of the prince that was promised. Uh, we get to see he carries uh, the cat's paw dagger that was so you know instrumental in Game of Thrones, the series, and uh, it's it's a dagger that is passed down from king to king, we find out. So that was kind of cool, that little Easter egg in there. Uh, you've got Matt Smith, who plays Viserys' brother, Daemon Targaryen, and Matt Smith is just uh, wickedly brilliant in this. He plays Daemon Targaryen as the hot-headed asshole, uh, womanizer, hell-bent for blood. He plays that so well, but then he plays some delicate, tender scenes. There are so many scenes where he gives a look to his brother, especially when his brother's failing health and he has uh, like a version of leprosy and he's dying. And you see these, these scenes, these shots where uh, it's focused on Viserys and Damon's in the background out of focus. And then the focus switches from Viserys to Damon and you see Damon looking at his brother uh, almost sympathetically. It's his older brother. He doesn't want to see him dying. And those scenes like that are very, very touching there are touching scenes between the two of them when they've had so much animosity and and heated uh, arguments and discussions. And then, you know, you'll have a tender word, tender moment between the two. Uh, it, it was just really nice to watch. And then there's a scene that comes up later, I believe, in episode nine. No, I believe episode eight uh, that that we'll talk about when we talk about that episode. But I really liked uh, Matt Smith's portrayal of Damon Targaryen, probably one of the best parts of House of the Dragon, but definitely one of the best parts of the first few episodes, because the first few episodes were just a, a slog to get through. They were just so boring. They might, might as well, if you base it on like the first half of the season, they might as well have called it the House of Small Council Meetings. It wasn't about House of the Dragons. It was just about uh, procedural small council meetings with Viserys and his small council. Just boring AF. Uh, I just, I, I, I wondered if I was going to end up liking this series uh, after the first few episodes because it was just mind-numbingly boring. But Matt Smith in those boring episodes was the best part of it because he just added charisma to the show that was much needed and and got you through some of those some of those early episodes that were just oh just unbearable to get through and not that the acting was bad in those first few episodes but none of the characters were written very dynamic and you got a dynamic character with the Damon Targaryen character played by Matt Smith like I said who played it with with a lot of charisma and was just fun to watch and brought things to life on the screen when when everybody else like i said i don't think it was any fault of the actors i think it is how the characters were written but everyone just seemed so uh, dour and down and and nobody really came to life on the screen matt smith and damon targaryen 
especially in those early episodes when things were kind of at a, a blah pace. Uh, he really brought things to life on the screen. Now, up next, we're going to talk about uh, Rhaenyra Targaryen, who actually played by two actresses. Uh, I thought it was interesting how they did this because you start off with uh, everything happening in a certain time. With Rhaenyra, she's probably in her mid-teens, uh, 12, 13, 14 years old. I'm not sure exactly. And then we get uh, several time jumps uh, at least 16 years or more worth of time jumps until we have adult Rhaenyra. And it was smart because I, and I say it's smart because they cast it right. They cast the older version of Rhaenyra and Alicent for that matter. And then they found an actress that looked like a younger version of her uh, or Alicent, I should say. Uh, both of them, and they cast it quite well because uh, Millie Alcock plays the young Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen, and she does a fantastic job uh, with, you know, she plays kind of that uh, uh, teenage rebellious, uh, just just doesn't want to be agreeable with her dad, no matter what, until she has made the heir, and then, even then, she doesn't take things serious because I, I think she feels like she's never going to see the Iron Throne. But Millie Alcock plays that quite well. And then uh, Emma Darcy plays an older Rhaenyra Targaryen, the Rhaenyra that we're going to see for the rest of the series. And she does a fantastic job as well. I don't know how much the two actresses spent time together. I imagine they probably spent some time together just to kind of get their mannerisms and just kind of get their delivery and their attitude. But it all seemed to, to gel together. Like you really believed that Emma Darcy is is a older version of Millie Alcock. So uh, I really liked the casting there. And, and Rhaenyra is, uh, you know, she's the heir to the iron throne. And that really is where all the trouble lies in all of this. And, and we'll talk about that as we, we get on. Uh, Reese fans plays uh, Sir Otto Hightower. He's the hand of the King. And really he's kind of like the little finger of this series. He is always, uh, he's scheming and plotting and very ambitious and always all his decisions, all of his actions go to serve his own ambition and not so much the realm uh, or the king for that matter or the king's daughter and heir to the Iron throne. But he plays this quite well because he kind of plays it in that every person is the hero of their own story. He looks at himself as the hero of his story and he plays it like that. He doesn't play it like the villain. Uh, he plays it like he's doing this because this is right for the realm. This is right for his family. This is the right thing to do, which it makes the character quite complex and, and multifaceted and, and interesting, other than just kind of blanket, he's the bad guy sort of situation. Another one of the main characters is uh, Alicent Hightower, Otto Hightower's daughter. Uh, she is a friend growing up with Princess Rhaenyra, uh, young Allison is played by Emily Carey, and she does a good job. Again, they they cast the older version first, and then found a younger version that that looked 
like a younger version of, of the older character. Of course, the older Alison Hightower played by Olivia Cook, who I, I think both actresses played an excellent job. It's a little different from the book because I believe Alison Hightower in the book, she is about 10 years older than Rhaenyra and it wasn't like they were childhood friends like in this. I think changing that a little gives it uh, a little more interest uh, because you have these two girls that in the series are, are childhood friends and how they grow apart and that relationship is strained. And that that is more interesting other than a woman 10 years older that she didn't grow up with, she wasn't best friends with, uh, comes along and marries her father. And it's easy for that person to be the villain. And in the book, that's what she is. She's pretty much a straight up villain. Uh, again, we'll talk about that coming up. But uh, I think Olivia Cook plays Allison Hightower quite well. She plays the undernotes of ambition well. Uh, she plays the sympathy, but she also plays the ruthlessness of this character that I think is true to the book. And again, I think the show has made her a little more multifaceted than the book, much like one of her sons, Eamon, is a little more multifaceted in this than, than straight up villain like he is in the book. So really, uh, those are kind of the main players. I mean, there's a lot of other actors that we're going to talk about, uh, characters that we're going to talk about, but just want to give a, a brief rundown of some of my favorite scenes or some of my favorite things uh, about each episode, things I liked and didn't like. Now, now the first episode really is kind of a just a, a rundown of the history, how we've gotten to this point. There's a lot of backstory that we're told. We're introduced to all the main characters. By the end of the episode, Rhaenyra is named the heir to the Iron Throne. There is a cool scene, though. I, I love the scene uh, that had Damon and the gold cloaks going throughout town trying to dispense uh, summary justice. And you saw beheadings. You saw people losing limbs. You saw, I mean, I always joke about how Game of Thrones should have been called uh, game of beheadings and titties. When I saw that scene, I was like, oh, they are living up to the legacy of Game of Thrones because in that first episode, you saw a lot of beheadings, maybe not beheadings, but dismemberment and titties uh, is pretty much what you got in that first episode. So I thought that was... It, all in, you know, all kidding aside, that was an interesting scene. It was, it was very disturbing to watch. And then, of course, uh, you have that kind of playing against Rhaenyra being named heir after the events of the tournament, which we actually got to see a big grand tournament of uh, the tournament Robert Baratheon had in a Game of Thrones, uh, was, was a little lackluster. We got to see the grandeur of a big tournament. Let's look later in the series. We got to see the grandeur of a royal hunt, which was kind of cool to see that. Uh, episode two, Rhaenyra, her dragon, showing up at Dragonstone as we have the confrontation, the first confrontation between uh, Otto Hightower and Damon Targaryen, which was kind of cool. We really got to see... Uh, just a really cool dragon scene. I mean, we saw dragons on the first episode. They open with that. But this was the first really cool dragon scene. And, of course, this is the episode where Viserys weds Alicent after his, his wife dies in episode one. Episode three, uh, again, a lot of small council meetings. Just a, a lot of boring Boring small council meetings made up the bulk of the first three episodes. The one really cool thing is uh, they set up this whole, like, sub plot with the triarchy 
uh, in, you know, Stepstones and Blockades and, and this Crab Feeder character that I thought was going to be like a main character, a main villain throughout the first season. Well, in episode three, we finally get this really cool battle scene with the armies of Damon and Corliss Valerion, played by Stephen Toussaint, which I'll get with him in a second. But uh, you had this really cool battle scene and this this scene where Damon just goes on this suicide mission and just kicks ass and takes names and then his Caraxes, his dragon shows up and then there's the showdown which we never really get to see the showdown between Damon and the crab feeder but we see the end where he walks to this mouth of this cave and we just see the silhouette of Damon standing there dragging the severed torso of the crab feeder is just iconic I know in the book I think he just cuts off his head and it carries that but but just the scene was very iconic and like oh yeah now we're getting there now we're getting somewhere with this show little did i know that we did not get anywhere because it it went back to a lot of boring small council meetings but i have to say that i really liked steven toussaint as lord corliss valerion uh, I thought he did a fantastic job, and I know a lot of people were really upset that they they did a race swap because he is white in the books, as are most of the Targaryens, uh, all that I'm aware of. But uh, you know what? I I didn't mind it. A lot of people were upset that there were a lot of people of color in the Rings of Power, which I thought were uh, unfounded because to think that this world is just nothing but white people, Middle Earth is is ridiculous and the thing that rings of power did that i think they did right just to save people from bitching uh they didn't do any race swapping they just created new characters and hired actors of color to play these roles i don't i don't think they did that uh intentionally but but it allowed them the opportunity to to hire you know people of color uh, for these roles without a lot of backlash of, you know, pointing the finger saying they did race swapping and they're changing Tolkien's work. In House of the Dragon, uh, I think if you were going to make the argument about race swapping, it would have been more valid here. But I, I think in the grand scheme of things, uh, you want a good actor. And S Steve Toussaint is a fantastic actor. And I thought he played Corliss Valerion quite well. In the grand scheme of things, it's not as big a deal. And like I said, uh, as long as he played the character well, and the character was, I think, true to the to the stories and true to the books and the source material, uh, I, I it didn't bother me that they did a race swap with this. And like I said, uh, if the acting is solid and Steve Toussaint is a solid actor, he's a good actor. I really liked him. Uh, you know, I can I can look past. Uh, things like a, a little bit of race swapping. Now, episode four, uh, Damon and Rhaenyra, we get the scene where they're out in the seedier section of King's Landing. I don't want to say this was a highlight or something I liked, but it was a, oh, F. The Targaryens are back at it again. They sure like some family love and they hook up. Uh, then Rhaenyra hooks up with Kristen Cole. It just, oh, what a tangled web we weave when... First, we practice to bang our relatives and then bang the first guy we see after. That doesn't work out. Episode five, I think, is where things really started to pick up for me. Uh, you had the wedding party uh, between Rhaenyra and Laenor. Of course, Laenor Valerion, uh, they decide that he and Rhaenyra should wed to unite the houses. Uh, she's going to be queen, and that was to appease 
uh, Corliss Valerion. Uh, it was an interesting, the, the episode leading up to the party wasn't that interesting, but once you got to the wedding party, things got real when Lenor's uh, boyfriend, Joffrey, gets killed by Kristen Cole and just a bloody and gruesome, <laughs> gruesome murder. It was just disgusting. And then, of course, they they do the, uh, not really a shotgun wedding, but they marry Rhaenyra and Lenor. Uh, kind of on the down low without any pomp and circumstance and frill. Uh, episode six, where we get the first major time jump. You get a 10 year time jump. This is where you get uh, Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook taking over the roles of Rhaenyra and Allison, respectively. And Rhaenyra, by this time, she has three sons, although not by Lenor because, uh, he's, well, he's gay. Um, in the book and in the show, and she has three sons with Harwin Strong, which uh, <laughs> it's, it always makes me laugh uh, how in the book and in the show, they always refer to her sons as the strong boys, uh, a, a playoff of strength and a playoff the name. But uh, this had this is one of those instances where they had an opportunity to set up uh, a lot of intrigue and mystery. You had Lionel and Harwin Strong both burn at Harrenhal. And you could have done like a whodunit, uh, kind of like who killed Robert Aaron in the first season of Game of Thrones. They they set that up as a mystery and you, you found clues. They found out who did it, but they tell you right away it was Lionel uh, Strong's other son, the guy with the foot fetish. And there was no mystery. You know, you set this up and, and it's all because he's trying to get in with Allison. I get that. But again, the first half of the season was so boring. Just small council meetings and you had a, a little bit of interest dotted and peppered throughout. But uh, there was just no intrigue. You know, that was one of the great things about all the politics of Game of Thrones, especially the first season, is there was intrigue. There was interest. Oh, my God, who's doing this? Whose side are they on? You know. There was a lot of things, a lot of questions that you looked for answers to. And this, anytime they set up a question, they answered it right away. And there was just nothing for you to wonder what's going on. They just spelled it all out for you, like children running to the playground. Now, episode seven, that's kind of where we get closer and closer to the division between Alicent and Rhaenyra coming to a head because this is the Driftmark episode. At uh, Damon's wife's funeral, of course, he was uh, married to Lena uh, Valerion, and at her funeral, of course, he ends up banging Rhaenyra. <laughs> that was kind of messed up. But one of the most interesting things about this was uh, Alicent and Viserys' son, Aemond, claims Lena's dragon, Vagar, which is the oldest and largest dragon in the world, uh, about 200 years old, uh, not quite as as big as Balerion, the Black Dread, but bigger than any other dragon on Westeros. And he claims it, and after that, there's a disagreement as to whose dragon that should be, and Lucerus takes out Aemon's eye, which was quite disgusting. But then we get that great scene between Alicent and Rhaenyra, and, and Alicent wants retribution, and we kind of finally see her true colors. We see the ambition. We see the anger. We see the villain that she is in the books uh, that we haven't got much of in the show so far to this point. 
And of course, I thought it was quite interesting. I don't know if it happens this way in the book. Uh, it's one of the things I'm really unclear about, but they, they fake uh, Lenore's death. So he can go off to Essos to be with his with his boyfriend, and that leaves uh, Rhaenyra and Daemon uh, free to wed, which they they wed and are together through the rest of the story. Now, episode eight, we get another six year time jump. Uh, Corliss is missing or wounded, maybe fatally. Nobody's really quite sure. There's a power play for Driftmark. Driftmark has been promised to Lyceris, Rhaenyra's second son. But the High Towers want Vaymond, uh, Corliss's brother, to to take over and be the heir to Driftmark. And it's this big power play that uh, Viserys, even though he's sick and dying, finally gets involved and, of course, sides for his his grandson, Lucerus. But there's a, a great scene where he's he's walking to the Iron Throne and he's just, you know, he's dying. He has a walking stick. He's trying to make it up the steps to the Iron Throne. He falls and doesn't want any help from the Kingsguard, but somebody comes to help him and it's Damon. And he allows Damon to help him up. And his crown falls off his head and, and Damon gets it after he helps him to the Iron Throne and places the crown on his head uh, because Damon has always wanted to be the heir after Viserys. But uh, a touching, it was such a touching scene. And, and that scene, from what I understand, was not planned. The crown fell off of Paddy Considine's head accidentally. And Matt Smith just stayed in the moment and picked it up and put it on his head and just... Uh, a brilliant piece of just not letting the scene end until the director calls cut. And it, it just, like I said, made for one of the most touching moments between Viserys and Damon uh, of the series. And it's things like that, scenes like that, that make him more complex than than just the rogue prince. But things get bloody again as Vaemon uh, accuses Lucerus being a bastard. I mean, he is, but everyone's kind of playing the game and, and pretending like he's not uh, Harwin Strong's son. But uh, I, I loved the scene. You kind of see Damon moving around back. And next thing you know, Vaemon is his head comes off like just above the tongue so all you see is the top of his decapitated head and the the tongue kind of hanging out Uh, it was disgusting and fantastically brutal and and probably one of my favorite scenes uh, as far as deaths go in the series thus far but you get that that heartbreaking scene at the end Viserys is dying He's on his bed. Allison's there. He had talked to, to Rhaenyra earlier in the night about Aegon's dream. You know, that's uh, a secret that only kings pass down to other Targaryen kings. So nobody else really knows about it. Viserys, we find out, never said anything to Damon about it. He, of course, never said anything to Allison about it. So you hear uh, Viserys kind of in these delusions talking about Aegon and, and the prince that was promised. And she thinks it's her son, Aegon. And he could be talking about Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, but he also could have been talking because he was just introduced to uh, Rhaenyra's youngest son, Aegon, uh, which would have been Aegon, third of his name. She introduced Viserys to that son, a prince, and maybe he's making the connection that he is the prince that who was promised. And it just, you know, it, I think it's things that will all come out in the wash, but she thinks she's, he's talking about their son, Aegon, and that really is what drives her to do what happens in the next episode. Now, this is one bit of departure from the 
the book that I, I know some people have issue with. Of course, in in this scene where Allison's confused by what Viserys is saying on his deathbed, wanting Aegon to have the Iron Throne because she thinks it's uh, Viserys's will and, and not her own ambition. In the books, from what I understand, uh, she's more ambitious. She wants Aegon on, on the Iron Throne out of sheer ambition and not just confusion or mishearing what uh, Viserys is saying. I think in the book, she's made out to be more of a villain. And in the series, she's made out to be a little more sympathetic, which I, I, I don't mind. If you're going to make Alicent and Rhaenyra childhood friends, she can't be a straight up villain. There have to be some sympathies there. And I think that makes the character a little more complex. I think we have seen shades of her ambition and her her ruthlessness so i i think you know it just helps to make a character a little more multifaceted uh, and, and i don't mind that 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 was one thing that i think uh some reviewers and some critics uh and and fans of the book didn't care for which i didn't mind it it really didn't affect me negatively i mean look at it this way uh if those two aren't childhood friends uh, then there's no reason for either one of them to care that they look at the other as the enemy. And that is just straight up black and white. This is the good guy. This is a bad guy. Uh, whereas this uh, gives you kind of that gray area in the middle. These two were childhood friends. You feel for the fact that that relationship has been torn asunder. And every time they turn around, every time it looks like they're going to make amends, something happens to pull them apart. And when you want them to be friends again you you want them to have that childhood friendship that they once had when they want uh, and long for that childhood friendship that they once had the fact that it's not happening and things are playing against that uh it gives stakes to the relationship between these two characters episode nine you get Alicent and Otto rushing to have Aegon crowned Aegon the second second of his name king of the Andals and all that jazz they set up a lot of whose allegiances lie where uh, Princess Renice was uh, pretty much being held captive until she escaped. And probably one of the coolest scenes in this Green Council episode was when she uh, goes down to the dragon pits and busts through the hall of the coronation on her dragon, Malaise, and... <laughs> And you're thinking there for a second, she's going to burn everybody, but she doesn't. And she explains why in episode 10, which uh, is understandable, but it was such a, it was such an iconic scene and such a fantastic scene uh, and fun. I mean, it was like, okay, this is what I'm watching House of the Freaking Dragon for there are scenes like this. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, this scene is not in the book, but that's one of those added scenes that I, I, I can forgive it not being a part of the source material because it was just so cool. And we get more of that in episode 10, the Black Queen episode, where we kind of see things from the other side. Rhaenyra finds out that her father has died, that uh, Alicent and Otto Hightower are, are pushing Aegon to the throne, usurping her as the, the rightful heir but she takes a different route. She's planning for peace when everybody around her, especially Damon, is preparing for and wanting war, which I thought was an interesting interesting take on that until she sends uh, her two sons, uh, Jaceris and Luceris, out. So she's sending Jaceris, the older, and her heir to the Eerie 
uh, to talk to the Aarons and up to Winterfell to talk to the Starks to, to rally them to her support. And she sends Lucerys down to Storm's End to speak with Boros Baratheon. And when Lucerys gets to, to Storm's End, he finds that Amond is there. And Aemon is the, the one who he took his eye out. And uh, there's a great back and forth between the two before the, the final scene. And, you know, Aemon wants to fight. And Boros Baratheon is telling him, not, not under my roof. Uh, he was sent here in peace as an emissary. And then, of course, uh, once Lucerys leaves, Aemon chases him down. Now... In the book, it plays out a little different than in the series. And again, I think a lot of critics and a lot of reviewers aren't, aren't happy with the change, but I didn't mind it. In the book, it's, it plays out more like Aemon was hunting down Lucerys. He was going to kill him from the start. Uh, there's a, an interesting passage from the book where the sister of the Baratheon daughter who is pledged to Aemon says, after Lucerys doesn't want to fight, uh, she asked Aemon, was it your eye he took or one of your balls? I, I'm glad they didn't do that line. It would have been funny as hell, but it would have taken the tension out of a scene that really was building up a lot of tension. Uh, you've got Lucerys flying away on Arax, his, his dragon, and all of a sudden you see the huge shadow of Vagar over top of him. And you get this really nice chase scene. Uh, you know, he pulls the Millennium Falcon where he goes in through a narrow chasm, and uh, Vagar can't follow because it's too big. But then you have the scene where uh, Arax is coming up and blows fire, and you hear Lucerys telling him, you know, uh, obey my commands. He wasn't trying to attack, but these, these dragons do have minds of their own. And it all plays back to a quote from Viserys in episode one, where he's telling Rhaenyra that uh, it's a myth that the Targaryens control dragons. No one can control dragons. Now, they have a, they have a bond, they have a psychic link with dragons that connects them, but but nobody could really control a beast that big. And, and that plays out with Arax uh, inadvertently attacking Vagar and Vagar inadvertently, uh, well, not inadvertently, but attacking Arax and as a result, killing Arax and killing Lucerys. And in the episode, <laughs> uh, he bites uh, Arax essentially off his wings and Lucerys is somewhere in his small intestines at the moment, or in her small intestines at the moment. In the book, it plays out a little different. Uh, Arax and Lucerys's body wash up on the beach of Storm's End like three days later, and that's how they know he died. I know a lot of people are upset because uh, it, it made it feel like Aemon killing Lucerys was an accident and not just murder. And that doesn't give the character agency. Well, Aemon did have agency. He didn't have to chase Lucerys. He did it because he's vindictive. He's a vindictive, uh, I was going to say a, a bad swear, but I'm trying not to swear as much any, these days. But uh, he's, a, he's a vindictive, uh, as the British say, C-word. Just because he didn't intend to kill Lucerys uh, doesn't mean he's not responsible for Lucerys's death. And and I like the fact that it gives him a little more complexity. Eamon, in the book, is more of a mustache-twirling villain. 
Uh, I don't want that. That's, I mean, yeah, sometimes you need that. But sometimes when you're talking about, you know, Lucerus is his nephew, it's family. Maybe he wants revenge. He wants to take his eye out. But uh, I, I don't know as if, does he really want to kill him? I'm not saying that this makes him sympathetic that he didn't want to kill Lucerus because it certainly doesn't. He is the one that instigated that. He is the one responsible for that. He may not have intended for Lucerus to die. He did not intend for Vagar to chomp him into dragon bites, but his actions made that happen. His actions set up that situation. His actions and him acting like a little dick are the reason why he got his eye taken out in the first place. So he certainly does have agency. And just because uh, he didn't mean to kill Lucerus doesn't mean that he's still not a villain and doesn't make him sympathetic at all. It just makes his character not so one note bad guy. So I like that. That scene was such a Oh, you knew it was coming. And like, I know a lot of the story of the Targaryen Civil War. I knew it was coming, but ooh, it was still, they ratcheted up the tension quite well on that scene and just paid it off beautifully. And then, of course, Rhaenyra gets the word and then she turns around with a stream of tears coming down her eye and a shit is going to hit the fan look on her face. And come on, season two, where are you? So all in all, I, I really enjoyed this first season, but not because of of most of the season. Uh, I think the last two episodes, maybe the last three episodes, made the rest of a boring season all worthwhile. And a lot of really good actors made this season all worthwhile. You know, I talked about Aemon Targaryen. I thought his casting was quite good. The young Aemon Targaryen, played by Leo Ashton, I think, uh, really kind of played. Uh, he, if anybody was sympathetic, it was that version of Aemon. Uh, you know, he didn't have a dragon. All the kids picked on him. And he's kind of the bullied kid who just doesn't take, can't take it anymore and snaps. Uh, we see it a lot these days. Uh, Ewan Mitchell plays the older Prince Aemon Targaryen. Of course, uh, you know him from The Last Kingdom. Uh, love him in that. I, I was really surprised when I found out that's who was playing him because he plays such a, a nice guy in, in Last Kingdom, a good guy. And in this, he's such a dickhead. Uh, but he he plays this character so well. It is hard to believe that he's only supposed to be like 16 years old in this. That's the only thing that bothers me is that uh, he looks much older than he looks older than his older brother Aegon in this. But you know what? I, I can look past that because, like I said, uh, Ewan Mitchell is such a, a fine actor and plays Aemon Targaryen so well. Uh, really enjoyed him. Uh, Eve West is brilliant as uh, Princess Renice. I really enjoy her. Fabian Frankel, uh, Sir Kristen Cole, uh, a character that you like to begin with. You sympathize him in the, with him in the middle, and then he's he's a real jackass by the end of it that you just absolutely cannot stand. And he plays that's because he plays the character so well. He does a fantastic job with with that. Graham McTavish as Sir Harold Westerling. Uh, I, I love him every time he shows up in something uh whether it's the witcher 
whether it's, you know, Castlevania doing voiceover work for that. Uh, quite good. Matthew Needham is creepy as Lara Strong, uh, the the cat with the foot fetish. Just a lot of good actors and actresses in this this production that uh, I'm really excited. Now that things have picked up, now that we're getting into the Targaryen Civil War proper, I think things are going to be a lot more exciting once we get into season two. I think that was the problem with this. There's just too much setup that was needed, and I think it did need. My wife has tried to instill in me that they, you did need all this setup to, to get to where things are now. You had to understand the relationships and why things have happened the way they have. I, I wish they could have made it a little more interesting. You could have introduced characters from the other houses and kind of played the whose side are they going to be on a little more than you did. You could have played a little more into the intrigue. There were some mysteries that could have been set up that that they just didn't do. They just, here's something that happens and instead of who done it or what happens, we just tell you right off the bat what happened. And it just made, like I said, uh, made for a bunch of small council meetings that were about procedural stuff and uh, who's guarding the uh, stepstones and all that nonsense. Who's the rightful heir? Who's going to be the heir? It, made, it was all quite boring for the most part. But like I said, you get little bits and pieces of interesting and exciting action peppered throughout the first uh, six, seven episodes. And then once you finally get to those last three episodes, that's when things really get going. Things really start to ramp up. And the last two and a half, three episodes I thought were were quite engaging, quite interesting, quite action-packed, quite intriguing. There was a lot of things going on, a lot of the, the interplay of Westerosi politics uh, coming to bear, uh, along with all the action and dragons. So I, I really think the last two, three episodes are really what saved this season from being a dull and boring season. And like I said, I look forward to more interesting things as we get into the future. We didn't get to see what happened when uh, Deceris went up to the Eyrie to talk to the Aarons and went to Winterfell to talk to the Starks. I imagine we'll see that probably first thing in season two. I'm interested to see how things play out with the Starks because Cregan Stark, who is ruling Winterfell right now and ruling the North, he is kind of in a similar situation where a <laughs> there was a usurper trying to to take his birthright, and so uh, I have a I have a feeling what side he'll fall on. But it really is going to be fun to be back in Winterfell and back with the Starks and back with the North because winter is coming. Some of the other things I really liked about this production, I I liked. Uh, I like the look of it. I mean, it really, there were some, some of the C, big CG city shots of King's Landing didn't really quite uh, seem as good as what, what they did in Game of Thrones, especially in the later seasons when they had kind of perfected it. I'm hoping that'll develop. Some of the dragon scenes, uh, you could really tell which scenes they put the money into and the which scenes they kind of were trying to do dragons on a budget because there were some scenes where the dragons looked as like, oh God, uh, they haven't developed this. <laughs> it feels like they went backwards in the technology. But then there were other scenes that the dragons look really fantastic. Uh, so like I said, you could really kind of see which scenes, uh, which scenes were the budget dragons and which scenes were the ones we're going to soak some money into 
these dragons because they looked fantastic. I, I like the costume design and the set design. All felt real. All felt like a lived-in world. Uh, very akin to what they did in uh, the Game of Thrones series. So, so I was really happy with that. I, I think showrunner uh, Miguel Sapochnik, who uh, he was like the big director in a lot of the big episodes all the the big battle episodes of game of thrones he was responsible for that i really like that they brought him on board as a showrunner uh it's sad to see he's already left the series uh so i don't know what that means i don't know if maybe there were some creative differences or or what the deal was with that i'll be interested to see uh, what the fallout is from that, and maybe if we get any reasons why uh, Miguel Sapochnik stepped away from this, but uh, but I really liked. I, I think his involvement uh, was maybe underutilized. Like I said, you know, he's responsible for some, some of the biggest episodes of Game of Thrones, and uh, the bulk of this season was just so boring. He he probably was bored to death. That's probably why he left. But uh, I really enjoyed him. Uh, Ramin Jawadi just does a fantastic. Uh, job with the score as always i love his scores from game of thrones to westworld all the other stuff he's done just a, a fantastic composer and just creates such iconic scores for for these series and movies that he's done really enjoyed that the one big complaint i would have about this series is the fact that they reused the song the theme song the opening song from from a from Game of Thrones, uh, I believe it's called uh, a Song of Ice and Fire. They just reused that. They did a new intro, which I think is kind of cool with the blood and the family tree of the Targaryens. But I really wish they would have done a little something different with the theme song. I mean, my my wife and I talked about this at length. How you could have done a different song, and then maybe you know how in the Song of Ice and Fire song, the the Game of Thrones theme, it kind of does goes into that breakdown in the middle. Uh, I, I really can't describe it, and I'm not going to hum it for you. But that little breakdown in the middle of it, or or maybe closer to the end, you could have taken that section and done something that was akin to the Game of Thrones theme. So you could have had notes, you could have had hints and uh, musical allusions to the Game of Thrones theme within a new theme. I, I think this show needed a new theme. And uh, like I said, I was quite disappointed that they just reused the theme from Game of Thrones. And I'm hoping maybe they'll change that in season two. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe HBO is like, now just reuse the old, uh, old song until we find out if we're even going to do a second season. So there you have it. That's my look at season one of House of the Dragon, my recap of that. Uh, like I said, I, I didn't think I was going to like this season, but I ended up, like I said, the last couple episodes really saved the season for me. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do with season two. Now, season two, uh, because they really weren't sure how this was going to pan out. And I guess HBO didn't greenlight a second season. I don't even know if they've actually greenlit a second. Oh, no, I think they have greenlit a second season. But it happened so late in the game that they're just now getting things started. And we won't get a second season of House of the Dragon until 2024. So not next year, but the year after that. I, I wonder if it might be early in 2024. 
but uh, we'll have to see and you can keep it locked on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Any information we have on Season 2 of House of the Dragon will certainly pass it along. Uh, you can check that out on our Facebook page, Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on Facebook. Always posting trailers and articles uh, that we find from all over the internet. Add my two cents on it as well for all the fantasy and horror and science fiction genres that we love. And no matter where you listen to this podcast, please... Uh, download it, subscribe to it, follow it, whatever you have to do, like the episodes, uh, download the episodes, share the episodes with everyone you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. We do appreciate that. We do enjoy the support and appreciate the support. And of course, uh, leave a review. Five stars would be awesome. But whatever review you leave, we do appreciate that as well. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!